السلام عليكم ورحمة الله وبركاته بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم الحمد لله رب العالمين اللهم صل وسلم وبارك على نبينا محمد وعلى آله وصحبه أجمعين أما بعد I think it's probably just prudent to say to make a couple of announcements before we begin just so that we kind of know how the format of this class is going to work insha'Allah so as you can see we stream this class live through the Quranic progression portal and that's why there's some time and delay in starting. We may finish Salatul Maghrib slightly earlier, but because we've given a set time to people to be online, we're going to have to wait for for them to kind of like start. So there may be like a couple of minutes of waiting, inshallah. So um, the first thing that I wanted to ask for is we are looking for volunteers for help on this Quranic progression class each and every single week. So what you can see the brothers in front of me to my left doing um, they're basically helping with the setup. They're helping with the setup in the physical class here in the masjid. And that's so that we don't put too much burden and too much, um, you know, take too many of the resources of the masjid and the staff here. But also, they're also setting up the online system. So, the, the uh, broadcast that we do online, the Quranic progression portal, all of this kind of ties in. And these brothers come maybe half an hour, 45 minutes early to set up all of this. So that inshallah we can stream this live to the people that were watching and are watching us live as we speak. So just to give you an indication, last week we had approximately over a thousand people that were tuned in uh, watching this class from all across the world. So the potential for reward is amazing. And all of this stuff for those of you that haven't been on QuranicProgression.org, I would seriously advise that you go on there. All of this is going to be, inshallah, kept in the library. It's going to be labeled, easily navigated. It's going to have the audio, the video, the notes. All of that's going to be available. So we're looking for people, dedicated volunteers. And I stress the word dedicated because we need people that we can rely on. So if I turn up next week and you've taken on the responsibility to kind of do the setup and then I come and everyone else comes and you're not here, that's like a big responsibility, right? We can't do this class without depending on those brothers, inshallah, that are going to come and help us do the setup. So we're looking for volunteers. If this is something that you're interested in doing, inshallah, you know, like an hour extra out of your week, gaining some ajr, being part of this, inshallah, this legacy that we're striving to achieve, the sadaqah jariah, then please come and see either myself or one of the brothers here that you see towards the front on my left. And inshallah, you can leave your details with them and then we can contact you. That's the first thing. The second thing in um, just following up from what Sheikh Sa'ad said after the Salah with regards to this partition board being opening. Um, I understand after last week there were a number of people who commented on this and I think the brothers at the masjid, I didn't get anyone saying anything to me, but the brothers at the masjid got a lot of feedback concerning this from brothers and sisters and some people weren't too happy. So I want to just mention why we do this from two points of view. Number one is the Islamic point of view and number two is the class point of view or the logistical point of view. The reason why we do this, firstly, from an Islamic point of view, there's nothing wrong with opening up some of the screen, the brothers being able to see, the sisters rather being able to see the sheikh and so on. There's nothing wrong with this because in the time of the Prophet ﷺ, this is how our sisters, how the companions, the female companions of the Prophet ﷺ used to seek knowledge. This is how they would come and they would study. And the Prophet ﷺ used to know many of them on a first-term basis. He would know them by their names, and he would know who they were, who they were married to, and so on. And that was something which was common in the time of the Prophet 
during the day of Eid, after the Prophet used to give the khutbah, the general khutbah, he would go to the women's section and he would address them specifically. And he would take Bilal with him. Right? The, in Sahih Bukhari, when the women came to the Prophet and they began to complain, O Messenger of Allah, all of the men are narrating the hadith. You spend time with them, you narrate hadith, they memorize, but you don't give us any time. Right? We don't have any time where we can study with you. So the Prophet appointed for them a certain time and a certain day in which he would go and he would speak to them and he would teach them first hand. In the hadith of Abdullah ibn Mas'ud radiallahu anhu, the Prophet said, and it's also in Sahih Bukhari, he said, addressing the women, give sadaqah even if it's from your jewelry. The wife of Abdullah ibn Mas'ud radiallahu anhu, her name was Zainab. So she went to her husband Abdullah and she said, and she was a wealthier woman than her husband. She would spend on him and she would spend on the orphans. She said to Abdullah ibn Mas'ud, who's an illustrious companion, one of the major companions, one of the early Muslims. She said, go to the Messenger of Allah and ask him that what I already spent on you and the orphans, is that enough or is this something extra? Abdullah ibn Mas'ud said to her, you go and ask him. <laughs> what are you telling me for? You go and ask him if you have the question. Which shows, again, that if the sisters have questions, if they have needs, and the Sunnah shows this openly and over and over again, they would go and approach the Prophet and they would ask those questions directly. Ibn Mas'ud said to her, you go and ask. So she came to the house of the Prophet and she saw another woman standing outside who had a similar question. Bilal was walking by and they said to him, can you go and ask this question to the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam, and don't tell it, don't tell him it's from us. So Bilal radiallahu anhu went in and he spoke to them, to, to the Prophet sallallahu alaihi He asked the question, and the Prophet sallallahu said yes. If she spends on her husband and those orphans, not only does she get the reward of a sadaqa, but she gets the reward of doing good to her family, right? Joining the ties of kinship. So then the Prophet asked her, who are those two women that asked you this question? Asking Bilal, who are those two women who asked you to ask this question? So Bilal said it was Zaina. Right? He knew her name, Zaina. So the Prophet said, Ayu Zayanib, which Zainab? Right? Many female companions had the name Zainab. Which Zainab? So then Ibn Mas'ud radiallahu anhu replied and he said, Zainab, the wife of Abdullah ibn Mas'ud radiallahu anhu. The point of this is that it's something which is allowed. So I know that some people feel uncomfortable with this, and that's why, alhamdulillah, the brothers at this masjid have given you, you know, like the sisters have given them the option of viewing the screen and so on, and that's to make them feel comfortable. But in terms of like a religious aspect, a religious point of view, inshallah, there's nothing wrong with it. But one thing that we have to remember, all of us, is that there are certain etiquettes, there's a certain decorum that we must maintain when we have this type of class, right? And that's what's important. The companions, the women used to come to the Prophet's masjid, and they would pray behind the men, and there was no barrier. There was no wall, there was no room, they would pray in the same place. But the Prophet used to say to them that when you go into sujood, he would say to the women, let the men stand first out of sujood and then you stand, meaning delay getting out of sajda. Just in case they come up and they see something that they shouldn't see. Some of the men standing up and they see something that they shouldn't see. In those times, the men, as we know, used to wear something similar to the haram, what we call an izar, like a lower garment. And it's easy to reveal yourself when you're standing up in, those, in that type of clothing. But they would have these etiquettes that they would maintain in the time of the Prophet So that's what's important. But in terms of a class point of view, the whole reason of this is we want the sisters to be, feel a part of this class, just as we want the brothers and sisters online to feel a part of this class. And that's because one of the major issues that we're facing in our community 
in the West and even in the East, but in the West especially, is that we're, we're not really giving due attention to our sisters. In terms of the Islamic knowledge, Islamic education, Islamic learning, the vast majority of masjids across the country, some of them don't even have a place for sisters to come and pray. But even those that do, they don't really give them anything by which they can learn their religion. They don't give them the opportunity to approach the sheikh or approach the imam or ask questions or to learn. And that's extremely important. Not only because you know, it's their religion and they have a right to learn that religion, but also because often you know, sisters, to be honest, are better students than brothers. Right? No offense, guys, but that's just the, the truth of the issue. They're better students, and they will then, inshallah, teach that knowledge to their family members, their children, the people in their community, and those people that are around them. So we want them to feel part and parcel of this class, and that's why it's open, just so that they have their opportunity, inshallah, to ask questions and to feel like they're also part of this class. Um, inshallah, next week, for those of you online, we're going to begin at 7.30. So as Maghrib moves earlier and earlier, for those of us obviously here, we come and pray Salat al-Maghrib. For those of you online, inshallah, we will begin at 7.30. Okay, so we're going to continue with the isti'adah. Right, so I know you guys are probably thinking, how long can we go on about Rudh Billahi and Shaitan al Rajim? But this is the isti'adah that we began with last week, the statement that Allah Azza wa Jal commands us to say before reading the Quran, even though technically we said it's not a verse of the Quran. One of the things that the isti'adah shows us is how much we're in need of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, right? how weak we are, how feeble we are, and how much we need Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala's protection. How much we need Allah Azza wa Jal to help us, to give us refuge, to give us shelter. How important these concepts are in our religion. Often when we think about evil, and we'll discuss this in more detail when we speak about Surah Falaq and Surah Nas, we think about external evil, or the evil that we can see, or the evil that we can anticipate, or the dangers that we can kind of understand are coming to our, you know, towards us. And so, for example, you know, if you're crossing the street with your children, you tell them to look right and left. Right? If you're, for example, I don't know, you're going to get some building work done, there's certain precautions that you're going to take because we're aware of those types of things, right? We go and get vaccines and jabs and so on because we're aware of the things that we can see and that we understand and that we can kind of like the concepts that we can uh, begin to fathom within our minds. But then there's a whole nother realm of dangers, a whole nother, if you like, universe of dangers that we can't see, that we can't perceive but that are equally as dangerous, if not more so. And that's why this statement of A'udhu Billahi Min Shaitan Ar-Rajim is so powerful. It is so strong. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala tells us to begin by seeking refuge in Him subhanahu wa ta'ala, seeking His protection, seeking His shelter, seeking His aid. And then we ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to give us the protection from that which we can see and that which we can't see. And that's what we're going to discuss today, like the word-for-word meaning of the isti'adah. So the isti'adha begins with a'udhu. And a'udhu in the Arabic language is the present sense or present tense verb of isti'adha. It means I seek refuge. So it's like you're constantly seeking refuge in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And the isti'adha is an amazing act of worship. It is primarily an act of worship of the heart. So it's something that you in your heart need to feel. Something that you need to understand that you're seeking Allah's help, you're seeking refuge in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Because often, when we make these adhkar, they kind of become habitual. It's just something that you just say now, it's something you do. You say to your children, or say, A'udhu Billahi Min Shaitan Ar-Rajeem. Or you say, A'udhu Billahi Min Shaitan Ar-Rajeem. But it doesn't really register 
in our hearts, in our minds, what it is that we're saying. And that's a big problem, right? In our salah, in our Quran, in our adhkar, that we're saying these things, but we don't really understand the, you know, the, the sense of what it is that we're saying. So when you're seeking refuge in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, when you say a'udhu in the present tense, it's as if you're constantly seeking Allah's help and His refuge, right? And a'udhu, um, or the word i'adha, to seek refuge, to seek shelter, has many meanings in the Arabic language. One of them is to seek refuge. One of them is to seek help. And not only to seek help, but to seek i'atisam, which means that you seek help from someone that's stronger than you. Right? Just like, for example, if you need help in life, right, there's people that can help you, but they don't have the capacity really to do much. Then there's people that can help you, but they're probably similar to what you're doing already. And then there's people who can help you, and they have more power than you, more expertise than you, maybe more means than you have. And those are the people that you normally go to first. Right? And then you work your way down. So when you're seeking Allah's help, His refuge, His shelter, you're going to the one that is the strongest the mightiest, the most uh, glorious, subhanahu wa ta'ala, you're seeking his help and his protection. And there are other things then that you would do that are practical things, right? That Sharia tells us that you do. So for example, at night you cover your utensils, right? You close your windows, you close your doors, all of those kind of things that are mentioned in the Sharia. The Prophet used to say before you go to bed, then, you know, like go through your sheets and your, your duvet and your mattress, make sure that there's no insects there. These are practical steps that you take because sometimes there's harmful things that can come and affect you. But before that, you seek Allah's help. And you're seeking help from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in the sense that He is stronger than us and He is the one that we must return to. And that is also one of the meanings of the isti'adah, to turn towards Allah. Right? So it's as if you're physically, spiritually turning towards Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And we're going to go through, um, like towards the end, inshallah, if we have time, we're going to go through the different cases in which it's mentioned to make this ti'adah. And it's in the notes that you have as well. There's like 12, 15 different places in our, in our religion where the Prophet ﷺ told us in the sunnah, say the isti'adah at these places, right? So it's like you're physically and spiritually going to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and seeking His protection, especially at certain times and in certain places. And then we have the word Allah, right, or the name Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. A'udhu billah. I seek refuge with Allah, right, in Allah. And that's an important point because seeking refuge in that sense, in the sense of its ultimate meaning, can only be with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So I can seek help from you, and I can seek assistance from you, and you from me, and I can seek advice from you, and you from me. But we always understand that there's limits to our capacity, right? There's limits to our ability. As humans, there's only so much that I can do for you, and only so much that you can do for me. But in terms of turning to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, there is no limit to Allah's capability. There is no limit to Allah's knowledge. There is no limit to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala's power and strength. So when you ask Allah for help, you're not just going to someone who's like you, someone who's similar to you. You're going to the one who not only knows what you need and how to help and protect you, but he knows what's good for you in the future as well. So the protection that Allah gives to you is not limited. Right? When you ask someone for advice today, they only tell you what they know to the best of their knowledge. But three weeks later, three months later, three years later, that person will increase in their knowledge, increase in their experience. They'll be able to advise you in ways that they couldn't do two or three years ago. But when you turn to Allah, Allah already knows everything. Allah already has infinite wisdom, infinite knowledge. Allah already knows the future and the unseen. 
So when you turn to Allah for help, and you turn to Allah for protection and refuge, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala gives you that complete divine care and divine protection. And that's why the that name of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is so important, right? The isti'adha in the vast majority of the hadith, the vast majority of the verses of the Qur'an, always comes with the name of Allah, right? It comes with the name Allah. And we're going to speak a bit more about, you know, the other names of Allah, Ar-Rahman, Ar-Rahim, as we go through like the Basmala. Then when we go into Surah Ikhlas, we have Al-Ahad, and we have, you know, Al-Samad, all of these different names that will come up. But the name that is most used in the Qur'an and in the Sunnah of the Prophet wasallam to refer to our Lord, our Creator, is Allah, the name Allah. Right? And that's why, and this is another discussion, inshallah, that we'll also have at some point. What is the greatest name of Allah? Ismullah al-A'zam. That's mentioned in the famous hadith that indeed Allah has the greatest of names. Whosoever calls upon him using that name, then Allah will answer their du'as. Right? And he will give them that which they supplicate for. So Allah when you use that name that is his greatest name, Allah responds to you. The vast majority of many of the scholars of Islam said that that greatest name of Allah is actually Allah. Because that's the one that Allah uses the most in the Qur'an. Right? And that's the one that the Prophet would use the most in the Sunnah. And in fact, especially in the Isti'adha, that's the one that you have the most. A'udhu Billah. Right? In the Sunnah, in the Quran, it's always A'udhu Billah, unless on a couple of occasions. In Surah Maryam, in the story of Maryam, السلام, when the angels come to her in the form of men, I think we mentioned this last week, she says, as Allah mentions in the Quran, Inni A'udhu Rahman. I seek refuge with a Rahman from you. She didn't know who they were. She didn't know if they came to do good to her, to harm her. So she sought refuge in a Rahman, which shows that it's allowed to use one of the names of Allah, one of the attributes of Allah to seek refuge with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. But the vast majority of that is always done with the name Allah azza itself. And that like kind of marries very nicely with also that meaning that Allah is the greatest name of Allah. Right? And that's why even in the hadith that speak about the names of Allah, Allah is always referred to as Allah. Inna lillahi tis'an wa tis'ina isma. Allah has 99 names. Right? And the Prophet didn't say, Ar-Rahman has 99 names, Al-Khaliq has 99 names, Ar-Razzaq has 99 names, even though the meaning is the same. But when Allah when the Prophet most referred to Allah and then speak about his names, it's as if every other name kind of shoots off, it branches off, from that central name, and that is the name Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. That's why the basmala begins with Bismillah, and then you have Ar-Rahman Ar-Rahim, right? And so it always begins with the name of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. وَلِلَّهِ الْأَسْمَاءُ الْحُسْنَى Allah says in the Qur'an, and to Allah belong the most beautiful names. And again, Allah describes himself with that name, or he calls himself by that name. So this name Allah, what does it mean? The scholars of Arabic language, they say that the original word of Allah is Al-Ilah. Al-Ilah. Al in the Arabic language means the, and Ilah means God. So Al-Ilah means the God. Now the Arabs have this thing, and if you study Arabic grammar, you study Arabic language, you'll find that one of the things that the Arabs, especially in the olden days, one of the things that they were really keen on was to make the Arabic language as eloquent as possible. And one of the things that they did to do that is that they would merge words together to make them easier to pronounce. 
make them easier to roll off the tongue. Even today, if you go to different parts of the Arab world, if you go to, for example, you know, like Syria and Asham, or you go to Egypt, or you go to Yemen, you find that people have different dialects in Arabic. And those dialects, the differences that you find in them are often to make it easier to pronounce. Right? So, for example, if you go to Saudi Arabia, modern-day Saudi Arabia, what is very common in, in Arabic and Saudi Arabia in their local dialect is they turn the qaf to a ga, like a ghayn, right? So they won't say qul, they say ghul, right? And the reason why they do that, because the qaf is a difficult letter to pronounce, right? Most of us that are non-Arabs find it difficult to do that anyway, right? We're already doing the ga, because we find it difficult to say, right? And if you're doing tajweed, you know, the qa with the, with that like broad sound that comes from the back of the mouth, and so it's a difficult sound to get out of your mouth. So the Arabs have the same issue, right? even though they know it and it's their language. In their everyday speech, they change these letters to something else that's easier to pronounce. Right? Um, you know, you'll find, for example, in Kuwait, often they change the kaf to a shim. Right? If you go to places like Asham, they often put on an imala. Right? So, for example, instead of saying, you know, like, uh, and this is actually part of the qiraat, when you study the different me- methods and modes of reciting the Quran you will find that many of those rules are actually placed within the qiraat because they were taken from the dialects of the Arabs. So for example, instead of saying najmi ida hawa, in the qiraat of some of the qiraat, you say hawa, najmi ida hawa. Because to say hawa is easier than to say hawa. The a is a harder sound, and that actually kind of sounds lazy now, right? Because it's not that difficult. But when you're doing it constantly and over and over again, it becomes harder to do. The a sound is harder than the a sound. A is easier. Easier, rolls off easier from the tongue, easier to pronounce. And so the Arabs have this thing. They always want to make the Arabic language easier. So Al-Ilah was merged together. The two lambs were brought together and merged and it became Allah. Right? So Allah, the essence of it is the God. Right? The God, meaning Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. The one worthy of worship subhanahu wa ta'ala. But the word uh, Allah also has a number of other meanings. Number one is Al-Ma'budul Muta'. Allah is the one that is worthy of worship. He's the one that is worthy of all worship. And that is one of the meanings that are inherent within the name Allah. And this is important because next time you're making dua, you're saying Allahumma, right? Or you're saying A'udhu Billah. Or you're saying Bismillah. And you're using the name of Allah. It should mean something to us, right? These concepts, these words, these terms within our language, when we say them, our hearts should move. Right? The Arabs, the, the pagan Quraysh, even before Islam, the pagan Quraysh, even, despite their evil, despite their shirk, despite the crazy stuff that they used to do, you know, they would bury their daughters alive, they would make tawaf naked around the Kaaba, there are all sorts of craziness going on. But one of the things that they understood was the reverence of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. If they made an oath and they uttered the name Allah, they considered that to be a serious issue. Because now it's very commonplace, right? You go to many people and they say, Wallah, and they'll take an oath by Allah and they'll use Allah's name, but they're not serious, right? They'll take it in vain. They'll take oaths by Allah's name, they'll swear by Allah, and then they break that promise, they break that oath. And to them, it doesn't make a difference, it's not a problem. They don't have an issue with it. Whereas the pagan Arab Quraysh, even though they were people who worshipped 360 idols just around the Kaaba, but when they made the name Allah, when they said the name Allah, 
it was something which moved their hearts, right? It was something which they considered to have reverence, right? And not just that, but even the Kaaba, right? The Kaaba was something that they revered. So we know in the time of the Prophet ﷺ, before he became a prophet and they want to rebuild the Kaaba, one of the things that they made it a condition upon themselves, because they were the custodians, they could have done what they wanted, but they made it a condition upon themselves that they would only use halal wealth. Only halal wealth to rebuild the Kaaba. And that's why they fell short. Right? That's why that Hijr of Ismail, that semicircle area outside of the Kaaba, wasn't built as part of the Kaaba. When they knocked it down and they had they gathered their wealth and they rebuilt the Kaaba, they found that they didn't have enough money to take that inside of the Kaaba. So they made it the cube as it is today, and they left that part outside and they just put the semicircle to show that it's actually a part of the Kaaba. So when you make tawaf, you have to go around that semicircle. It's part of the Kaaba. When the Prophet came to Mecca and he conquered Mecca, what did he say to Aisha radiallahu anha? Were it not that your people are new to Islam, I would have demolished the Kaaba and rebuilt it again upon the foundations of Ibrahim alayhi salam, meaning with the semicircle in, right? But the Quraysh were people who used to revere the Kaaba. They used to revere the sacred months, right? Like now we're in the sacred month of Muharram. To us, it doesn't really mean anything because we don't even, most of us, or some of us don't even know we're in Muharram, right? It's not something which registers anymore, but it's a sacred month, meaning that if you sin in this month, it is a greater sin than sinning outside of this month. The oaths that you make, the promises that you make, everything that you do has added significance because that's how it is. That's the Ashharul Hurm. It is one of the sacred months. So even in the time of Quraysh, even though there were people who were at civil war with one another, family members killing with one another, you know, like vendettas and family feuds and so on, and tribal issues and, and, and warfare and strife, in the Ashharul Haram, in the sacred months, if people from two opposing factions were to walk past one another, they wouldn't even say anything to each other. They wouldn't even curse one another, let alone harm them or beat them up or draw blood. They wouldn't even say anything bad because they understood that they're in the sacred months. So when we say the name Allah, it should be something that stirs our hearts, right? So the first meaning is that Allah is the one worthy of worship, the one that we should submit to, right? The one that we should sacrifice for, the one that should mean, or Allah should mean more to us than anything and everything else, right? When you do something for Allah, it should have more value in your heart than when you do it for your wife or your husband or your children or your parents or anyone else. Because you're doing it for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and He is the one worthy of all worship. The second meaning of Allah is that He is the one that you love and revere and glorify. So when you say Allah or you worship Allah, it's done out of love, right? It's done out of reverence. It's done out of glorifying Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And this is um, you know, as Allah says in the Quran, Surah Al-Baqarah 165, From the people are those who take gods besides Allah in worship. They love them as they should love Allah. But those who believe have a greater love for Allah. And that's an amazing verse. It's very powerful. Why? Because what we should do, when you see people who don't understand worshipping Allah, they don't understand Tawheed, they don't understand the Qur'an, they don't understand or they don't believe in the Prophet ﷺ, yet they go through such lengths in order to worship the gods that they do believe in, what they consider to be the truth. 
They go through so many, you know, like trials and so many issues and so many tests to worship something which in actual fact is false. That those people upon the truth who do know Allah, who know that Allah alone is worthy of worship, who believe in the Quran, who believe in the Prophet shouldn't we go through even more lengths? Shouldn't we go to further lengths? Shouldn't we put in more effort? Shouldn't we sacrifice more and submit more to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala? And that's what Allah is saying, وَالَّذِينَ آمَنُوا Those who believe, who profess Iman, أَشَدُّ حُبَّ لِلَّهِ They should be stronger, greater in their love for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And that's what we saw from the companions of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. You know, it's not easy to do what they did, to leave your parents behind, sometimes your family behind, sometimes your spouse behind, to leave your land, to be hurt, to be tortured, to be persecuted, all because you believe in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Yet their love for Allah was so great that everything else became easy for them. Right? Everything else was insignificant. You have companions who were super rich, super wealthy. But then as soon as they accept Islam, all of that wealth is taken away from them. And in a single moment, they go from becoming extremely wealthy to becoming extremely poor. No money, nothing, homeless, no clothes, nothing to buy with, nothing to live with, nothing to do, anything that they need in terms of living. But their sacrifice for Allah was greater. They didn't mind because they knew that their love for Allah was greater outweighed everything else. And that's what it means when you say Allah. Allah is worthy of worship and Allah is the one that I love. Allah is the one that I revere, the one that I glorify. The third meaning of Allah is that He's the one that we turn to in times of difficulty, in times of hardship. And that's why many of the du'as have the name Allah, right? You say, Allahumma, right? And you're saying, you're calling out to Allah with that name, O oh Allah. Acknowledging that you need Allah's help. That when everyone else closes their doors towards you, when everyone else cuts off any path of retreat, when everyone else doesn't want to know you, doesn't want to help you, you still have Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And in fact, you had Allah even before they turned away from you. And that's why the Prophet would turn to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala at every single moment. Right? Dua is one of the most greatest acts, most powerful acts of worship that we have in this religion. When you turn to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and you invoke Allah with his name, right? Every more or less every dua that you make has a name of Allah. Whether it's Rabbana, our Lord, or Allahumma, our Allah, or you're asking Allah through one of his names, because you're turning to Allah and you're acknowledging that Allah is the one that you turn to in times of need. And number four, the fourth meaning that is inherent in the name of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is that He is the one that has uh, He is the one that is beyond the scope of our imagination. He's the one that has all unlimited power. Everything that you think that someone else can do, Allah Azza wa can do, multiplied, many for And you can't even begin to understand what Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will do for you. It doesn't even come within our minds. We don't even know what it is that Allah Azza wa will do and can do and does do for us. Because our minds don't have the capacity to understand. Right? And that's why one of the most amazing du'as in the Qur'an that you'll find is the du'a of Sulaiman alayhi salam. When he's thanking Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, this is in Surah Al-Naml, he's thanking Allah Azza wa for the blessings that he bestowed upon him and upon his father before him. Who was the father of Sulaiman? Dawood, right? He's praising Allah. And how many of us actually do, if you think about this, how many of us thank Allah for the blessings that Allah gave to our parents 
our grandparents, our great-grandparents, most of us don't even think about that, right? We don't even go that far. In fact, if you're going to make dua for someone, it's for the people that come after you, right? You make dua for your children, maybe your grandchildren, and really, okay, maybe sometimes your parents, but really do we go beyond that? He said, أَشْكُرُ نِعْمَتَكَ الَّتِي أَنْعَمْتَ عَلَيَّ وَعَلَى وَالِدَيْهِ Oh Allah, I give me the ability to thank you for the blessings that you bestowed upon me and upon my parents before me. Because he understood that all of the blessings that Allah gave to him are only a secondary, if you like, an extension of the blessings that Allah gave to his parents before him and their parents before them. Right? And that's why one of the things that you find you know, in the Prophet would do was he would remember his forefather Ibrahim right? because he remembers the good that he did and the path that he put him upon and the du'as that he makes, right? When Allah Azza wa mentions in Surah Al-Baqarah the du'as that Ibrahim makes for his children and for his offspring. And that's something which we're taught to do, right? So Allah Azza wa the blessings that he gave to us today are an extension of the blessings that he gave to our parents and our grandparents. You know, most of us are sitting here in the UK, but most of us are not indigenous to the UK. We don't, we're not actually, you know, like people who lived in this, in this country from generations, but people who've migrated. And Allah gave people or our parents or our grandparents that ability, that idea, that capacity to make that migration. And let's be honest, those of our parents and grandparents that migrated, they didn't come here because they said, oh, you know, we're going to build a masjid here, right? They didn't come here because they thought it's going to be better for Islamic knowledge or that we'll be able to practice our religion better. They came here because they wanted to earn money, right? They came to earn a living. They came for a better, easier life. And many of them, when they came, well, some of them weren't even practicing. They didn't even pray. And then when they came, they decided, okay, we now need to build a masjid. We now need to open a madrasa. We now need to have a tahfil school, memorize the Quran. And those things came later on. But look at how Allah Azza wa Jal, even though they came for one purpose, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala used them for another. And I, like, we all know this, I think, for, you know, largely a fact that the, that the way we practice our religion, our Islam in this country is far better than many people in many Muslim countries. And that's the sad reality. But it is also the fact. And that shows you how Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala plans things in ways that we don't even understand. And that's also one of the meanings of the name Allah. So when you say, A'udhu Billah, or Bismillah, or Allahumma, and you're using the name of Allah, you're turning to Allah, acknowledging that Allah Azza wa Jal knows what is best for you. So when you say, A'udhu Billah, or you say, Allahumma, and you make a dua, and then that dua is answered, or is answered in a different way, or something else happens that you didn't anticipate, you didn't expect. Part of knowing what that name Allah means is that you then acknowledge that actually what Allah gave to you was better for you anyway. Allah did what was in your best interests, even if you don't understand, even if you don't know. Right? And so Allah used you in a way that is better for you. Ultimately, it is something which is better for you. So those are the four names that we use, or the four meanings of the name Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And then we say, shaytan, right, from shaytan. And shaytan is a word that you will find often in the Qur'an. It is mentioned um, in its singular form, shaytan. It is mentioned over 70 times in the Qur'an. And in its plural form, which is shayateen, it is mentioned approximately 18 times in the Qur'an. Now one of the things that you'll notice in the Qur'an is that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala uses a few words to describe that kind of like species of jinn, right? So the first one is jinn. Allah azza wa jinn uses the word jinn 
The second one is Shaytan or Shayateen. And the third one is Iblis. All three are mentioned within the Quran. The jinn is the name of the species. Right? So as humans, we're a species, right? We're a creation of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. The angels are a creation of Allah, and the jinn are a creation of Allah. In the hadith, the Prophet said, Allah created the angels from light, and he created the jinn from fire, and he created humans from what he has said to you or mentioned to you, meaning in the Quran, meaning that we were created from clay. So we have these three distinct creations of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. The jinn is the species. Iblis is from the jinn. Iblis is from the jinn. Allah Azza says in Surah Al-Kahf, كَانَ مِنَ الْجِنِّ فَفَسَقَ عَنْ أَمْلِ When he speaks about how Iblis refused to prostrate to Adam السلام, Allah says he was from the jinn and he was disobedient when he came to that command of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. He turned away from Allah's command. So Iblis is from the jinn. And the shayateen or the shaytan sometimes can be used as another name for Iblis. So shaytan sometimes in the Quran, the word is used and what's being referred to is Iblis. Allah says, فَوَسْوَسَ لَهُمَ الشَّيْطَانِ Adam and Hawa السلام, when they were in Jannah, shaytan came and he whispered to them. Who's shaytan here? Iblis. Right, you're following this, right? Iblis is often used in the Quran and is interchanged. Iblis and shaytan can mean the same thing. But also shaytan has a wider meaning, a more comprehensive meaning. And that is everyone that wants to distance you from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Everyone that wants to take you away from Allah is shaytan. Right? Allah Azzawajal says, وَكَذَلِكَ جَعَلْنَا لِكُلِّ نَبِيٍّ عَدُوًا شَيَاطِينَ الْإِنْسِ وَالْجِنِّ and thus we have placed for every single prophet enemies, shayateen from the humans and the jinn, devils from humans and from jinn. Who are those devils that are from the humans, from the jinn? Meaning that they're people who want to remove you, take you away from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. No doubt shaytan as iblis is at the foremost form amongst them. But then you have obviously um, others as well, humans and jinn. Anyone that wants to remove you from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So when you say "A'udhu billahi min shaytan you're doing both, right? That's why that wasn't a good idea. When you say "A'udhu billahi min shaytan you're seeking refuge in Allah from shaytan as in Iblis, but then also from all of his helpers, all of his armies, anyone that will take you away from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. You're seeking refuge in all of them. And that's why it's such a powerful statement to say, A'udhu Billahi Minash Shaytan. You're not just confining it to Iblis. It is obviously at the first instance Iblis, but then it has a wider, more comprehensive meaning as well. Iblis in the, uh, in the Arabic language means the one that has been far removed and has no hope of the mercy of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Right? So when Iblis, and as we know from the Sunnah, Iblis was in the company of the angels. Before Adam السلام, was created, he was in the company of the angels and he was honored. And so that's why when Allah commands the angels to prostrate to Adam after his creation, Iblis, because he was in their company, because he was considered to be in that good companionship, the order and the commandment of Allah uh, also um, came over him, right? it also included him. So when Iblis refuses to prostrate to Adam السلام, that's when Allah expounds him. Right? Allah tells him to leave Jannah. 
and tells him to go away from the companionship of the angels and he tells him that he is outcast. So Iblis then makes a promise to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And before this, by the way, there's a hadith in which the Prophet wasallam said that when Allah first created our father Adam salam, and he shaped him and he fashioned him. And then he left him before he blew his spirit into him. Before Allah blew his spirit into him, he left him. So Iblis came and he was amazed at this new creation that Allah had created. Right? No human was created before Adam. This is the first time you know, and that's why Allah Azza wa Jal is the Fatir, right? He's the originator. He's the one who creates without any blueprint, without any model before. He originates the design. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala created Adam alayhi salam. Iblis came and he saw this new creation. So he began to walk around him. And he began to walk through him. And then he said, This is a creation that is hollow. He won't have any self-control. So Iblis, before the creation, before even Allah blew life into Adam and before you know all of this other drama happened in Jannah and whatever else, all of that stuff happened, Iblis already recognized the nature of humans. He already understood the way that humans would be, that they are hollow people and that they are people who have no self-control, no self-discipline. And that's why when Iblis afterwards is outcast, told to leave, what does he say to Allah? He made a promise to Allah, Oh Allah, I will attack them from in front and from behind and from the right and from the left and you will not find the vast majority of them grateful to you. Because he knew. Right? Hollow people, right? As Allah Azza wa Jal says in the Quran, Man is, is weak. Man is ungrateful to Allah, right? And so we're, we're weak and we're hollow and we're easily led. And then if you think about this, what does shaitan actually do? What is the greatest tool or weapon that shaitan has? What does he possess? What does he do? He whispers. That's all he does, right? Just as he did with Adam shaitan. He whispered to them. So shaitan comes and he whispers... And this is how weak and feeble we are when you don't have that self-control, that self-discipline which you take from worshipping Allah, coming close to Allah, making dhikr of Allah, reading the Qur'an, praying, all of those things that Allah told us so that we can protect ourselves from shaitan and his traps and his armies. If you don't do any of that, you have no self-control, no self-discipline. He leads us how he wants. Right? And so you seek refuge in Allah from shaitan. And that is the name Iblis. Right? Iblis, you know, seeking refuge. Iblis is the one that Allah has told him there is no mercy for him. Right? He has no hope in the mercy of Allah, no hope in the forgiveness of Allah, and so he's already outcast. And then in the other verse, Allah says about, uh, again, about that same story of Iblis and Adam and so on, that Iblis said, Oh Allah, I will misguide all of them. Except for your most um, like sincere slaves. Except for them, everyone else, I will misguide and I will mislead. So that's the name Iblis. Shaitan also means to be distanced. So the word shaitan in the Arabic language means someone that is distanced from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Right? And that's why Allah azza wa jal, or in the, in the sunnah, you will find that sometimes certain things will refer to as shaitan. Right? So some of the scholars, uh, for example, in the hadith of making wudu from camel meat. Right? Um, I'm sure Shaykh Isa went through this in our P. 
But some of the scholars were of the opinion that if you eat camel meat, it breaks the wudu, and there is a hadith to that effect. And some of the scholars said, commenting upon that, or the reason behind it, because it has devilish properties. Right? What is the devilish property of a, of a camel? It's obstinate. Right? It's arrogant. It's stubborn. Doesn't like give in, right? Has a long memory and remembers and so on and so forth. And so some of the scholars said that was the reason why you make wudu, right? So that, you know, once you eat that kind of meat, you make wudu, and wudu takes away obviously shaitan and the influence of shaitan. So that was the opinion of some of the scholars. But the point of this is that shaitan is anyone or anything that leads you away from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Can be human, can be jinn. Anyone that distances you from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So when you seek refuge in Allah azza wa jal from shaitan, you're seeking refuge in Allah from all of that evil. Right? And then Allah azza wa jal in the Quran, he describes shaitan with three properties. He gives three descriptions to shaitan. The first one is the one that we have in this, um, like in the isti'adha, and that is that shaitan is ar-rajim. Right? Shaitan is ar-rajim. And rajim means that he was outcast. Right? And it comes from the word rajam. And rajam is basically what you do when you stone. In the Arabic language, rajam means to stone. So for example, the adulteress or the adulterer that is stoned, it is called rajam. Right? That's the word for stone in the Arabic language. Shaitan is called rajim because one of the meanings of that also is that someone that's outcast. Someone that is cursed. Right? And cursed basically means when Allah Azzawajal well, the Prophet ﷺ say that someone is cursed, la'na. Right? The word la'na in Arabic, it means that they've been taken out of the fold of Allah's mercy. Right? So as we know, everything more or less comes under Allah's mercy. The creatures that Allah provides for, right? the birds and the insects, everything in this creation, this universe, comes under Allah's mercy. It is so vast, the Prophet ﷺ said that Allah's mercy overcomes his anger. And that Allah Azza wa Jalla, in the hadith, he, he created his mercy, was divided into a hundred parts. Only one was sent down to the earth. Ninety-nine are kept for the day of judgment. And with that one part of mercy, people have mercy towards one another. And even the animals, like the predators, have mercy towards their own offspring. So a lion, a tiger, a hyena, all of these like really dangerous animals, but when it comes to their own offspring, their own cubs, their own child, children, and so on, younglings, they have mercy because that is the mercy that Allah Azza wa Jal revealed. So to be outcast from that mercy of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, something that is so great, something that is so comprehensive, something that is so far-reaching, and then shaitan was outcast from it. Shaitan was made to be removed from the mercy of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And that shows you how far removed he is from Allah azza wa how he is the epitome of evil and the complete polar opposite of all the good that we're told to do in the Quran and in the sunnah of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. So that is the first description that we're given of shaitan. He is ar-rajim. Right? And Allah Azza wa Jal says in the Quran in Surah Al-Mulk, uh, verse number 5, I think it is, وَلَقَدْ زَيَّنَّا السَّمَاءَ الدُّنْيَا بِمَصَابِيحِ وَجَعَلْنَاهَا رُجُومًا لِلشَّيَاطِينَ That indeed we have beautified the skies with stars, right? with lights, the stars, the moon, the sun. Allah Azza wa Jal has beautified the heavens. وَجَعَلْنَاهَا رُجُومًا لِلشَّيَاطِينَ And we have made them rajam. 
Right from the same word of stoning, we have made them stones against the devils, meaning the shooting stars that are shut against the devils who try to go and steal news of the heaven, as is mentioned in different hadith and different verses of the Quran. So Allah mentions it in that capacity as well. Right? So rajam is something that is removed, thrown away, thrown out, right? removed from the mercy of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And that's why the scholars used to say that if the Prophet says that something would incur the wrath or the curse of Allah, then it basically means that it is a major sin. Right? Because what, Allah, what is threatening us with is that you're going to be removed from the mercy of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So when the Prophet cursed a number of people when it came to interest, right? the one who takes interest and gives interest and writes the contract and it tes- testifies to the interest. Or for example, when it comes to drinking alcohol, the Prophet cursed the one who drinks it and the one who presses the grapes and the one who serves it. All of those people that are part of that process, all of them are considered to be cursed. And there are different hadith that mention different people that are cursed by Allah or the Prophet cursed. And what it means is that those people are under the threat of being removed from Allah's mercy. Right? Unless they make tawbah, unless they repent, unless they turn back to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, they're under the threat of being removed. The second description that is given to shaitan is that he is married. Married. And uh, married means one that is obstinate, one that is arrogant to the extreme. Someone who disobeys and then continues to disobey and they don't turn back. That is another description of shaitan. Why was shaitan called marid or iblis called marid? Because shaitan, when he was asked or ordered, commanded by Allah to prostrate to Adam salam, he refused. And then when Allah asked him why, why did you refuse? Instead of turning back to Allah, you see the difference here between the way the angels responded and the way that iblis responds. When Allah before this, when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala was going to create Adam alayhi salam, and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala told the angels, Allah said to the angels, as mentioned in Surah Al-Baqarah, He said that I will place a khalifa upon the earth, a successor on the earth, someone to inherit the earth. What did they say? Oh Allah, will you place someone on the earth who will only cause corruption and evil and they will spill blood? So even the angels understood part of the nature of humans. What did Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala say? And they said, whilst we, O Allah, meaning the angels, we praise you and we worship you. What need do you have of these humans that will cause corruption, evil, kill, spill blood? Do all of this whilst we worship you. Allah said, I know that which you do not know. So the angels, after this, when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala creates Adam and he teaches him the names of everything, and then he asks the angels, you tell me the names of these things, and they said, we don't know. And then he asked Adam, and Adam alayhi salam, with the knowledge that Allah had given to him, told him the names of those things that Allah had informed him of. What did the angels say? Subhanak, la ilma lana illa ma'allamtana. Oh Allah, glory be to you. We have no knowledge except the knowledge that you gave to us. So the angels were rebuked, right? They were told, you don't know what I know. You don't have this knowledge. You don't understand. And then at the first opportunity, they turn back to Allah and they, they ask Allah Azza wa for forgiveness. They praise Allah. They glorify Allah. 
Iblis, on the other hand, has a similar encounter. He's told by Allah Azza wa prostrate to Adam. He refuses. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says to him, why did you refuse? Ma mana'ak? What stopped you? What made you refuse? Why didn't you prostrate? And instead of realizing his error, what did he say? Ana khayrun min. I am better than him. You created me from fire and you created him from clay. And he refused to back down. He refused to go back to Allah. He refused to understand that he doesn't have Allah's knowledge or Allah's understanding or Allah's wisdom. He became arrogant and stubborn and he became obstinate. So Allah calls him in the Quran as marid, marid. Right? And this is also mentioned in, in the Sunnah, this word or this description of marada, right? the obstinate devil. The Prophet in that famous hadith in Ramadan, right? when Ramadan enters, Allah opens the gates of paradise. And he closes the gates of the fire. And he changed the shayateen. And in one narration, وَمَرَدَتَ jinn, Right? And the obstinate devils. The obstinate jinn. So Allah changed them in the month of Ramadan. So this is a description that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala gives to the shayateen. The third description that is given in the Quran, and this is one that's taken from Surah An-Nas, we'll speak about it in more detail, inshallah, when we come uh, to that surah is that they are Al-Wiswas Al-Khannas. Al-Wiswas Al-Khannas. Al-Wiswas means the whisperer, and Al-Khannas means the one that runs away, right? or slinks away, or turns away, runs away, flees. Right? So we know generally from the hadith of the Prophet wasallam that there's certain things that will make shaitan run away. Right? Like for example, the most famous one is the Adhan. Right? The Adhan. So as the Prophet ﷺ told us that when the adhan is given, shaitan runs away and as he's fleeing, he passes wind. This is a description that's given in the sunnah. What does al-wiswas al-khannas mean? And we're going to it in more detail. It means that shaitan, when you're distanced from Allah, or when he wants to distance you from Allah, he comes and he whispers. He plants the seed of evil, plants the seed of the sin. So he comes and he tells you, do this, do that, whatever. And then as soon as, you, as soon as he's done that, he turns away and he runs away. He lets that thought fester, that whisper fester within you, and then he runs away, he flees himself. Or if you remember Allah, or you turn towards Allah, or you make dhikr of Allah, or you read the Quran, or you're making dua, or you're doing any good, he'll run away. Right? And then in the moment of weakness, he'll come back. That's Al-Wiswas Al-Khannas, right? And Allah Azza wa gives him this description. This is how shaitan does things, right? And that's why in the hadith you know, of the salah, where the Prophet told us that when you pray, shaitan comes, right? So the hadith is that when you make adhan, shaitan runs away. But after the adhan is done, he returns, right? Shaitan returns. And then when you're praying and you're making your salah, that shaitan will come and his name is Kinzib, and we'll mention this inshallah when we come to, to that part of the surah. And he comes and he starts to remind you of things that you didn't know. And he will say, Udhkuru kada wa kada. Remember such and such. And remember such and such. And remember such and such. Right? And that's like very common. Right? You know, like as we all do. You know, like you're, you're busy and you're working and so on. And you've forgotten to do something. And then as soon as you go to the salah and you say, Allahu Akbar, you remember straight away. Right? Instantly you remember. Or for example, you've lost your keys, right? And you're looking, searching high and low, asking your family, your children, everyone's searching for those keys, and you can't find them. But then as soon as you say, Allahu Akbar, you remember, right? Or that phone call that you forgot to make, or that appointment that you forgot to keep, or that email that was urgent and you had to respond to, but then you became preoccupied with something or someone else. As soon as you say, Allahu Akbar, 
That's when shaitan comes. Because that is how shaitan comes and he puts those whispers in. So if you say, A'udhu Billahi Minash Shaitanir Rajeem, you seek Allah's refuge, you seek Allah's help, shaitan flees again. Because now he's Al-Khannas. You've remembered Allah and he runs away. But if you don't, you don't remember Allah, you don't turn to Allah, you let that thought fester. Now your whole salah has just like gone into whole, like, you know, whole like, hope of the email and it's so important and I'm gonna, this is gonna happen and that's gonna happen. And then that momentary thought now lasts for 10 minutes the whole salah. Right? Especially if you're in Jama'ah. If you're praying on your own, you'll be done in 10 seconds anyway. Because that's how fast you're gonna go. But if you're leading behind an imam and the imam starts doing baqarah, you're like, oh man of all days, right? Today you have to do baqarah. Because that's what shaitan does, right? I remember hearing the story of uh, one of uh, the sheikhs in Saudi Arabia. This is like maybe 30, 40 years ago he was speaking. He said that he went to a, a town he was driving. And in those days, um, you know, before banking and all of this stuff came, this is like 30, 40 odd years ago. He was traveling and he was collecting donations for a masjid or for an orphanage or something. And people were giving him cash. And because he was going to different cities and different towns, by the time he'd like more or less come to the end of that tour or that journey, he had a briefcase full of money, a bag full of money, like, like cash, like riyals, thousands of, of, of riyals. So he says that I came to the masjid because it was time for salah, right? And he was thinking to himself, I'm going to go to the masjid, keep the bag with me, go inside, you know, I'm going to go and I'm going to pray, keep the bag with me, make sure I can see it at all times. And after salah, I'll go back to the car and, and drive off. He says, but I forgot. Right? I became preoccupied or the adhan was happening or the iqamah was going and there wasn't much time. So I quickly parked the car. I was in a rush. I left the bag and ran into the masjid. Ran into the masjid because he was a sheikh and people knew him. You know, they said, oh, sheikh, you're here. You have to lead. Right? Come and lead salah. And then the imam caught him and he said, not only do you have to lead salah, but afterwards we want you to do a reminder as well. Right? You're a guest. You know, for 10, 15 minutes, do a reminder and then you can leave. So he says, okay, no problem. You know, I'm a guest, whatever. He says, Allahu Akbar. He says, I remember that I left the bag in the car. Right? And it's in plain view. It's on the passenger seat. It's not like hidden in the trunk or something. In the boot. It's literally on the passenger seat. And it's open. And it's like kind of obvious that it's a bag full of money. So he's the imam now, right? And he's there thinking, wow, like, you know, what are the chances that someone's going to see that bag of money and break into my car and take it? So he said, it's probably one of the shortest prayers I ever led. Right? And then he finished the salah and he's like, I'm going to make, say, Assalamu alaikum, I'm going to be the first one out of the masjid. I'm going to turn around, get up, and run. But then as soon as he turned around, everyone started saying to him, No, Sheikh, you have to do a reminder, right? You can't leave, right? You have to do it. You're a guest. You don't come here. It's the first time you come. You probably won't come again. Give us 10 minutes. Give us 15 minutes. So now he's stuck, right? He can't say to someone, No, there's money in my car. But at the same time, he can't leave. So he decides to say to them, I'll do it on one condition. No one else is allowed to leave the masjid. Right? You all have to stay and listen, right? Which is, isn't what you normally do, right? Like after Salat al-Maghrib, you know, I, I'm not going to say, look, you're not allowed to leave. You can go home if you want to go. He said to him, not, no one's allowed to leave. You all have to stay. So they said, okay, no problem. But they didn't take him seriously. So he said, every time someone tried to get up, I'd say, no, we have a condition, right? We agreed. We, you promised. You have to sit down. So he said, I gave them like a five-minute reminder, and then literally I left. I was the first one at the door, and alhamdulillah, I found the money. But this is what shaitan does, right? And that's why Allah calls him al-wiswas al-khannas. Shaitan is the one who whispers to you. So when you're, you know, like engaged in trying to worship Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, shaitan will come and try to diminish that act of worship. So even if you do 
something which is good, something which is rewarding, something which will bring you closer to Allah. What's shaitan's objective? How do I make sure that that reward is diminished, right? How do I make sure that you don't take the maximum benefit of that act of worship? And that's what happens, what happens in salah, happens in wudu, happens in hajj, happens in Ramadan. Every good deed that you want happens in reading Quran, right? You're there reading Quran and you're only thinking of doing 10 minutes and as soon as you start to read, that's when you remember a phone call, right? That's when someone calls you. That's when you remember that action that you had to do or that job that you had to perform. And so this is what shaitan does and that's why Allah gives him these types of descriptions in the Quran. He is al-rajim. He is Al-Marid and he is Al-Wiswas Al-Khannas. I'm going to stop for Adhan. Tawadhin, Shaykh? Tawadhin? Five minutes more? Okay. So, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala gives us these three uh, descriptions of Shaytan. So this is the isti'adah, right? When you're saying, I seek refuge in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, and I seek Allah's protection, and I seek Allah's help, and I seek, I turn to Allah, the one that is full of power and might and glory, and I seek refuge with Him in every evil, right? every harm, everything that will distance me and take me away from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And that's why this is so important to read, not only for ourselves, in the different times of the day and the night and so on, but especially upon our children as well. Right? So in the hadith of the Prophet wasallam, the Prophet wasallam used to seek refuge with Allah from shaitan for his two grandsons, Al-Hassan and Al-Hussein radiallahu anhumah. And he would say to them that I make this ruqya upon you, I say this to you, I seek refuge in Allah, with Allah from the harm of shaitan for you, just as my father Ibrahim alayhi salam used to do so for his two sons, Ismail and Ishaq alayhi salam. And so it's something important and when you make, you know, when you have this type of protection, when it comes from the heart, when you understand the isti'adha, when you understand Allah and the name that you're invoking Allah with, and then you understand the harms that you're asking Allah to protect you from, and you're understanding the, 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 uh, the power of the isti'adha, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala gives you that complete protection. Right? He gives you His divine care and His divine protection. Right? And it's not just the isti'adha, you have Surah Al-Ikhlas, you have Ayat Al-Kursi, you have Surah Fatiha, you have Surah Falaq Al-Nas. These types of passages of the Qur'an, these chapters, these surahs of the Qur'an are there so that they bring to us these types of benefits and virtues of protection from the Qur'an. Okay. Okay, so we have like a couple of minutes before the Adhan. The, um, so after the isti'adha, after the meaning of the isti'adha, on your notes, I've given you a number of, of uh, different issues that the scholars discussed regarding the isti'adha. The first of those issues that we're going to discuss is when is the isti'adha made? Right? When is the isti'adha made? And I don't think we'll have time to go all over all of this in detail, but inshallah we'll, we'll speak about this in more detail next week. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in the Qur'an, He says, فَإِذَا قَرَأْتَ الْقُرْآنَ فَاسْتَعِذْ بِاللَّهِ مِنَ الشَّيْطَانِ الرَّجِيمِ When you're reading the Qur'an, then seek refuge in Allah from shaitan, the cursed. The scholars of Islam differed as to when you make the isti'adha, when you say, أَعُذْ بِاللَّهِ مِنَ الشَّيْطَانِ الرَّجِيمِ when it comes to reciting the Qur'an. Some of the scholars said that the verse seems to show 
that you make the isti'adha after you finished. Right? Which is obviously the opposite of what we usually do. So after you finish reading the Qur'an, or whatever of the Qur'an you're going to read, whatever passage, whatever surah, you finish by saying, أَعُوذُ بِاللَّهِ مِنَ الشَّيْطَانِ الرَّجِيمِ And that seems like they've taken that from like the, the, the literal meaning of the verse. Right? Once you've read the Qur'an, then read, أَعُوذُ بِاللَّهِ مِنَ الشَّيْطَانِ الرَّجِيمِ Seek Allah's protection from shaitan. Right? And the word إِذَا, in Arabic, فَإِذَا, Either can mean at the end of something, or it can mean at the beginning of something. And those scholars who took that position and that view, they said that you do it at the end because you're protecting yourself from becoming arrogant, right? That you've read the Quran and now that you're amazed by yourself, or you think that you've done something amazing, or that you become arrogant, or you start to show off. So you seek refuge in Allah at the end of the recitation of the Quran as a means of protecting your good deeds, right? as a means of protecting your worship of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And even though that is the minority opinion, it is you know like only a few scholars that said that, but there were some great scholars of the Tabi'een, like Muhammad ibn Sirin, Rahimahullah and Ibrahim and Nakhai, Rahimahullah, these are like from the major scholars of the Tabi'in, right? Muhammad ibn Sirin studied with the likes of Anas ibn Malik radiallahu anhu. And Ibrahim al Nakhai was also one of the great scholars of Iraq and he would become from the teacher of the teachers of, uh, of Abu Hanifa rahimahullah. So these were like amazing scholars during that time. This was their opinion. The opinion of the vast majority of scholars though is the common opinion that we have or the common uh, thing that we do and that is that the isti'adha comes before the recitation of the Qur'an. And either in the Arabic language can mean when you're about to commence something, right? So when you're about to start reading the Qur'an, then make, seek refuge in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala from shaitan, the accursed. Okay, inshallah, let's, let's stop for the other one. I'm 
I think we'll take some questions, inshallah, um, uh, because we only have six, seven minutes left before the salah. So I have a question online. Um, I'll take a couple from online, and then inshallah, I'll open up the floor here as well. How does the shaitan know if you're in a moment of weakness or can't focus in salah? So shaitan, um, as the Prophet wasallam told us, he runs in the child of Adam, the way run, uh, blood runs in the veins. Right? So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala just does, we have angels that Allah has appointed to us. Each one of us has what is called in Arabic a qareen, a devil or a shaitan that has also been appointed with us. And the companions asked the Prophet sallam, Messenger of Allah, is that even you? He said, yes, even me, except that I have overcome my shaitan and now he only commands me to do good. So Allah Azza wa gives the prophets that ability to overcome the shayat or those qareens that they have or those devils that are accompanying them. And so they're not enticed to do the evil or they don't whisper to them to do the evil that they will do towards other people. So shaitan knows and shaitan has the abilities that Allah Azza wa has given to him to know when we're weak. And sometimes even when we're not weak, shaitan comes and he makes us weak, right? So when we start the salah, none of us has the intention of not focusing in salah, right? No one goes into the salah with the intention of being distracted or not worshiping Allah or not concentrating or not having sincerity. But then shaitan comes and he chips away at us or he makes us remember something or do something and that's how we diminish our reward in the salah. Another question is, can we use any of the six masnoon forms of isti'adah taught last week? before we recite the Qur'an. Yeah, so the scholars said any of those uh, wordings of isti'adah, especially the ones that are mentioned in the sunnah, are allowed. Some of them, some of the scholars said that there are certain ones that were used at certain places, it's better to keep them for those, right? So some of them, for example, were when you enter into the masjid. And some of them, for example, were when the Prophet ﷺ would pray the night prayer. So some of the scholars were of the opinion that you use those wordings for those specific occasions. But Allah knows best, I think, uh, that to use any of them is fine, uh, even when reciting the Qur'an or in salah or whatever, because all of them have been authentically reported from the Prophet wasallam, and Allah knows best. Any questions from sisters, brothers, anyone? So shaitan, when he comes to us in the salah, so the question was, uh, when we say Allah Akbar, shaitan comes to us, is that why we read this ti'adah? One of the things that we'll discuss inshallah next week is whether you have to make this ti'adah or not in the salah, right? or even before you read the Qur'an. Is it obligatory or is it recommended? Right? And so the, the vast majority of the scholars are of the opinion that you don't have to read this ti'adah. It's not an obligation in salah or outside of salah. What the hadith says is that shaitan sometimes comes to you in the salah. If he comes to you, then say, A'udhu Billahi Shaitan Rajeem, right? And blow lightly on you or spit lightly to your left. That's if he comes to you. Because sometimes you're praying and Shaitan doesn't necessarily come to you. So the, the hadith says, if he comes to you. So if you find that you're being distracted, if you find that Shaitan's coming and trying to, you know, not make you concentrate in your salah, or he's come to you and he's started whispering to you, that's when you seek refuge in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala from Shaitan. And Allah Azza wa Jalla knows best. 
So the, the question is, are we saying that mankind is so weak that something as simple as a whisper can affect us? Right? Yes, but I don't think you should underestimate um, two things. Number one, the power of Iblis and Shaitan that he has. And number two, also the impact of that whispering. Right? You know, they often say like ideas are the most powerful powerful things that a person can have, right? Revolutions start off with an idea, right? All of these things that happen in history, if you study history, all of them begin with concepts and with ideas. So, shaitan has that ability, and, and uh, as we'll mention also when we come to Surah Al-Nas, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, when he describes the whispering of shaitan, he says that it comes directly into the heart, right? And we know from the sunnah that the heart is the most important part of the body. Right, the heart is where we have the capacity to do good or evil. That's what drives us to do good or drives us to do evil. Drives us to obey Allah or to disobey Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So when we're speaking about shaitan, yes, shaitan, number one, has that ability to whisper. But his whispering, as Allah says, right? He's the one who whispers directly into the hearts of humankind, right? Or the breasts or the chests of people. So his whispering his panting of a seed of evil his destruction begins from that right that's what he does it goes directly into the heart and then it festers so if a person understands what's happening and they turn to allah they seek allah's refuge in allah they seek allah's help they read quran they're making their adhkar and so on allah subhanahu wa ta'ala helps them to overcome that whispering but if a person isn't aware or they're not cognizant of that fact or they're not really like switched on to what's going on then shaitan can overcome them, right? And that's what happens. That's that's how all of us start to sin. All of us start to do something which we consider to be something small, and then it becomes bigger and bigger and bigger until it goes from a minor sin into a major sin, and then you know, sometimes it can even lead a person to disbelief. So Allah Azza wa Jalla knows best. Yeah. You know, you said um, the word shaitan <coughs> can sometimes mean iblis himself. Or it can mean uh, Lots of shayateens. Do we get this from? You know the Islam at the beginning. Can this? Does it make, do we get this expansive meaning from the Islam, like Islam? Uh, is just how it's been used? So the question is: Sometimes the word shaytan can mean iblis, and sometimes it can just mean like devils or different forms. How? How do we know that? Is it through the Islam that sometimes mentioned at the beginning of the word? It's usually known through context. So what you'll find generally in the Quran is that the word iblis or the name iblis is used. Mostly in the story of Adam and Iblis. So when Allah refers to the story of Adam and Iblis, that's when shaitan is normally referred to as Iblis by his name. And generally throughout the Quran, there's only like a couple of exceptions to that rule. Generally throughout the Quran, though, when Allah is referring to, to shaitan or the devils, he, refers, he uses the word shaitan, even if he's referring to Iblis. He uses the word shaitan. Um, that's taken number one from the context of the verse. So just kind of seeing what the verse is speaking about generally. Um, and also because sometimes shaitan, remember, has a wider meaning. So when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala sometimes uses the word shaitan for iblis, he's referring to iblis, and then by extension his armies, right? His, his helpers, right? Everyone that will do his... Because we know from the sunnah of the Prophet ﷺ that shaitan or iblis, rather, he sends out his armies during the day, right? And they go and they make someone steal and make someone do this and do that. And then in the evening they come back and they report. And then the one who caused a husband and wife to split, as the hadith says, that's the one that Iblis honors, right? He's the one that he says to that devil, come and sit next to me because you have done good, right? So Iblis has whole armies that he takes, as Allah Azza wa Jalla mentions in the Quran as well. So, um, yeah, so it's kind of like the context, number one. And then number two, Shaitan also has a wider meaning, 
right? And so Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is referring to both. Okay, inshallah, I think we're going to stop there because it is 9 o'clock. Jazakumullah khairan. Inshallah, next week, I think Maghrib is around 7 o'clock here, and online will be at 7.30, inshallah. Barakallahu feekum. Wassalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.